in a, in a nutshell, why is financial wellness so important? What is it? And why are so many companies uh, flocking to it? Well, think about this. When I have been at my job before when I am taking on a big life event, like I've just bought a house or we're about to have a kid or I'm dealing with some financial issue and I open up my browser and I'm thinking about it at work and I'm wasting time at work. That's killed productivity. When you think of, let's just use Google since they're kind of like a poster child for having great lunches and dry cleaning and education. You know, how can you allow your employees to be more productive? Help them with the things that take up their brain space and prevent them, not just their brain space, but also their time and prevent them from being productive workers. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. In today's interview, I had an opportunity to sit down with Peter Lassroth, and he is the author of a book called Making Money Simple. And it actually, we, we had a large, um, lot of podcasts that we did. And so this got pushed back and we actually did this interview pre-COVID. I know that was a while ago. And um, he taught, we talk about, you know, financial goal setting, investing, financial choices. And so some of the things, I mean, we don't agree on everything. I think he has a lot of good points that he makes. And, um, and you're gonna notice that some of the things that he says might have changed. Um, but I still, I still think that this interview is relevant and is important, and we're excited to highlight it. So I wanted to just share with you uh, a little bit more current update to what you're going to be experiencing. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Peter. Peter, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Caleb. I, I love, I, as we were talking before, like hearing pe- different people's perspectives or stories, their philosophies, and, and just, just as we were talking, some of the big concepts that you have in your new book, which I'm super excited about and I want to help you promote. Um, but I'm really hoping that this, this can be a conversation to dive into your story and why you're even passionate about this to begin with, because I think it takes a kind of crazy uh, to, to love this so much that you want to be in it all day long. But then I'm also hoping that you can give some key takeaways to my audience on just better, better wealth. This is the Better Wealth Podcast. We, we truly believe in living a better life. And we understand if we can use money in a powerful way, that can help us uh, do some amazing things. So why don't you introduce yourself to my audience, give your origin story, and then we can get into the nuts and bolts. Sure. Well, uh, I'll tell you briefly where I am today, super briefly, but I'll tell you how I got there. That'll be the real story. But um, I am the chief investment officer at PlanCorp, which is an independent registered investment advisor, which is really fancy language for just saying a totally independent firm that has no attachments to any sort of fund provider or insurance provider or tax provider. And we work directly with our clients and, and I oversee a little over four and a half billion dollars in assets. And so how did I get to this place? Well, I tend to trace it back to my 12th birthday. My grandmother gave me a share of Nike stock and mm. I have a December 20th birthday. My dad is Jewish and my mom is Catholic. So we have my birthday, we have Hanukkah, we have Christmas, we have it all. They used to be like, all right, let's just go to the closet and get them a gift. So the magic for my birthday has always been gone a little bit. But my grandmother, um, for each birthday from ages 12 to 18, gave me a share of stock. And on that first birthday in which she did it, she gave me a share of Nike stock. And I remember thinking, oh, this is lame. Like I got a piece of paper that says Nike on it and I got all these other cool gifts. What the heck? And she started talking to me a little bit about how it was an ownership in a company and how the shoes I was wearing, I now owned a piece of the company that made those shoes. I'm like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. 
But what really got me hooked and interested was the stock started to split. So my one shares became two shares and my two shares very shortly thereafter became four and then four became eight and 16 and 32. And I was getting these dividend checks in the mail for doing absolutely nothing at all. And I was thinking, this is amazing. I have to learn as much as I can about investing. I'm hooked. And I was not a big reader growing up. My, I think my getting me to do schoolwork, I think was quite a chore for my parents. So when I had asked them to take me to the bookstore to find a book on investing, they just, I think, were so thrilled. They would have bought me anything to read at that point in time. And, you know, I, I just became fascinated with it. And I think a lot of it was the fact that the way that wealth was created and how there was a system to create wealth without doing anything at all. And so I became hooked on it. And ultimately, when I went to college, I was an economics major, but I knew for, in high school and I knew in college, I really wanted to do something with stocks. Now, that could mean all sorts of different stuff. And to me at that age, it did. However, I ultimately landed in an independent firm in St. Louis. I was a trader initially, uh, an, an analyst, and I eventually ended up on our investment committee. And I was really, really fortunate that I shared a desk with that firm's chief investment officer. And any time when I was done at the end of the day with whatever I was tasked with doing, I'd say, hey, is there anything else I can help with? And he said, just go out there and learn something new. Like you gotta be keep, you gotta continually learn. That's how you're gonna be better no matter what you're doing. I said, okay. And I would read all sorts of stuff on not just stocks, but personal finance and retirement and savings and bank accounts and, and the economy. And I would take notes because I'm the type of person where to learn, if I don't write it down, I have a hard time retaining that information. And so every day I'd have this list of notes on things I would write. And I remember being in a portfolio manager meeting and they were talking about a program that the Fed had just come out with. Um, and I said, well, everyone's like, what is this? I said, well, actually, I have some notes on it. I'm happy to send them your way. And this is to the president of the firm. He says, yeah, that'd be great. So I send him these bullet points. And he says, well, wow, this is great. Why did you do this? And I said, well, I do it every day. And he goes, mm. really? Will you send it to me every day? And I said, sure. Uh, you know, president of the firm, I'm 23 years old. Sure. I'll do whatever you want. So, uh, so I, um, the next portfolio me manager meeting we had, he said, well, Peter's daily notes had this, that, and the other on this topic. And people are like, what are these notes? And ultimately what started there was an internal email, um, of bullet points on timely things in the news and different strategies in, um, different updates on different types of investments. And these bullet points eventually turned into sentences and sentences began to turn into paragraphs. And around 2010, I ultimately was writing full articles and decided to start emailing them out to people. And, and that led to different opportunities over time. I now write for the Wall Street Journal. I write for Forbes. Um, as you mentioned, I had a new book come out called Making Money Simple. And when I wrote Making Money Simple, my goal was quite simple. I wanted to lay out the blueprint that I'd used for myself and my family for my friends, for my clients. And I hoped that I could create a resource that was, you know, comprehensive enough that if you read it, you could take care of your finances. You could get a system in place to do, to, to achieve financial success. You could turn career success into that financial success that so much of, so many of us want, but don't always know how to achieve. Uh, but I also didn't want to be so comprehensive that people wouldn't finish it. So I tried to make it, you yeah. know, not cover every single detail, but just focus on the most important issues. And so, um, you know, I wanted to write this book for a long time. I came to Plan Corp uh, five years ago, almost to the day. And, uh, you know, there was a clear path to me becoming our chief investment officer and overseeing those assets. You know, a side part of the story is that I helped 
design and launch a separate company called Brightplan. Uh, Brightplan's okay. a digital advisor. It focuses on corporate financial wellness, but certainly for any of the listeners who want a sneak peek at it, even though it's designed for corporate employees, you can go to brightplan.com slash Peter and get a free month trial and check it out and get a benefit that, you know, publicly traded companies are giving to their employees and spending on just to help them make better decisions. So that's sort of the long story of how the interest was sparked, how I got here and uh, some of the things I'm working on. That's amazing, man. I, one, one thing that I pulled from your story is the importance of being proactive. And what, what, what do you think from a, you know, starting when you were 12 years old, you getting this fascination with getting dividends from Nike stock and how that, that grew. What, what is like one characteristic that you can look back on and say, I am where I am today because of this, this characteristic? Is it your proactiveness or is it the way that you research or is it your ability to ask questions or what do you think that is? So I'm a really competitive person. We do a lot of uh, behavioral screening when we hire people as well as when we promote them and for internal purposes that we all work together and I score off the charts for competitiveness. Now, I'd also tell you that I'm strategically lazy. So the idea of being paid money for doing nothing really appeals to me. Don't get me wrong. But I'm competitive in a sense where I'm an achiever and you know, if there is a level for me to climb to, I'm going to try to climb to it. And if I reach the top level, I'm going to build another level to climb yeah. to it. So, you know, if there's one attribute, it's probably my competitiveness. And I think particularly when you're writing as much as I am or doing like news spots or speaking, there are people in the profession that I really admire and I see them and they're highly visible on social media and, you know, we cross paths a lot. And I'm a little competitive with them. I mean, they're friends yeah. and I'm not mean about it, but I see what they're doing and I say, I want to do that too. And I remember, actually, it's really interesting. So I mentioned this uh, chief investment officer at my prior firm, you know, telling me to learn as much as I can. I remember telling him at one point, I want everybody in the world to know what it is that I do. And he goes, really? I wouldn't want that. And I'm like, yeah, I really want that. And so, you know, did I know it was going to be because I was writing for big publications or going on CNBC or writing a book? I, no, I didn't know what it meant, but I was passionate about getting a message out because I think that making good money decisions really is not rocket science. A lot of people are like, well, you wouldn't perform brain surgery on yourself. Well, that is true and a really good argument for having an advisor. However, making good money decisions is not brain surgery. It is not Correct. rocket science. It's honestly very behavioral and very systems oriented. And I feel like a lot of people just historically um, have not had access to good information. And so I wanted to be a loud voice putting out good information that could help people. I love that, man. Just real quick, do you play ping pong at all? I do. I'm awesome at ping pong. Uh, okay. But my dad is really good too. So we have epic battles. Okay. Sometime I'll host you and we can play because I, I also love the game of ping pong. And I am, I'll just say I'm undefeated with the guest on the show. So you can Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to like do a video for all the listeners. And I have a lot of family in the Denver area. And so I'm out there and we'll come out skiing soon enough. That's so fun, yeah, we'll have to make that happen. That'll be awesome. I would I would absolutely love that. Um it's it's funny because I am very competitive as well. And I there's there's a lot in both of our stories. I started young and became fascinated and did a lot of research. Um I'm not a great writer. But I did something similar where I read and take notes. And so that's, that's amazing. So I am also really fascinated with this idea that America's messed up financially, like big time. Yeah, it's, it's, what, it's what's embarrassing. The what's, the, what's the problem? Like if you, had, if you, were, if you were to spend two minutes on, on the news diagnosing the problem, why are we so, why are we so broke? 
Well, and America is a big place with a lot of circumstances and there are really underbanked communities and there are communities who don't trust financial institutions. And how do you educate people? I'm not sure. You know, in, in my book, I make a little bit of a quip that like, we don't even teach this stuff to high school graduates or college graduates. However, uh, since I have published this book, I have now seen definitive research showing that that does not help. Uh, which is really interesting. It actually makes people overconfident in things that they learned a decade ago or two decades ago or five years ago. And I don't know what the answer is. I do think having basic math skills would be a big part of it. I also think that uh, the government encouraging more use of technology. So I, I'm going to make this as, le as little of a political statement as possible because I'm not super into politics and I don't want to come off that way. But, you know, there's something like a 401k. That's a great government program. There should be, even if you don't have an employer, it'd be great if there was a way to enroll in some sort of emergency fund type savings. It's in treasuries, it's safe, but most people can't meet a $500 unexpected expense. And so, yeah. you know, us as a country, I have no idea how to fix that. I think okay. you could create social programs, not to give away money, but to make it easier for people to do it. I don't have the answer for people who are earning good incomes. However, now here's the thing. People who are earning good incomes and have the capacity to save that don't save, that's where the employer can step in. Um, you know, try to provide more financial wellness as a benefit. Yep. I think financial wellness is a well, is, is a really big, big hot space. Um, you see all the tech companies kind of gravitating towards it. And so I think then the rest of corporate America will, but boy, the other piece, um, you and I are obviously younger, but there's a real retirement crisis on our hands as a country. Uh, people are not going to be able to replace their incomes. And I don't know what that means. I think, again, you have a social safety net of some sort. And how does that impact the broader good? Mm -hmm. It's really complicated. And I think it's such a big multifaceted issue that anyone who has an answer, you think would have already provided it. And that's probably why we are where we right. are. But behaviorally, we as humans are not hardwired to make good money decisions. So that's probably why we really are where we are. We, we have all the wrong instincts with money and a lot of them, if this is because from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we're working with the same hardwiring as our ancestors who, you know, have not been, the scientific revolution was less than 500 years ago. So if you think of our species as being hundreds of thousands of years old, actually the cognitive revolution was only a couple hundred thousand years ago, but only 500 years since we've, had science as part of the way that we think, we're just not equipped to make these decisions. And so, yeah, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And even though I manage a bunch of money for a lot of people, I make a lot of mistakes. So I have to build things into my own personal system to make sure that, you know, the human in me doesn't get the best of my bank account. Totally, totally. Financial wellness. What is, what is that? How you can, how do you define that? Because to be to be totally frank, I'm with you. And it's so hard to be like, how do you save America? You really can't. Like some people, you <laughs> like, I'll, it's yeah. sad to say, but you can't. So the people that are listening to podcasts, though, people that are reading books are the ones that want a better way. There's a reason my company's called Better Wealth, because I truly believe a better life starts with having the better wealth mindset. And so with those kind of people, let's touch on financial wellness and then let's dive into your book because I know that the premise of your book is career success to financial success, which I'm really fascinated about. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, why is financial wellness so important? What is it? And why are so many companies uh, flocking to it? Well, think about this. When I have been at my job before when I am taking on a big life event, like I've just bought a house or we're about to have a kid or I'm dealing with some financial issue. 
and I open up my browser and I'm thinking about it at work and I'm wasting time at work. That's killed productivity. When you think of, let's just use Google since they're kind of like a poster child for having great lunches and dry cleaning and education. You know, how can you allow your employees to be more productive? Help them with the things that take up their brain space and prevent them, not just their brain space, but also their time and prevent them from being productive workers. And there are more and more studies. I know PwC has a really big one that came out recently showing the hit to company profitability due to financial stress. And I kind of earlier said that a lot of this stuff isn't rocket science, but there are so many options and so many different places to choose to focus on. You know, we can kind of be crippled by the complexity of choice. And even if we decide what area to focus on, there are so many options within each of those areas. And so how do you narrow that piece of it? Um, one thing that I've done, I created something called smartmoneyquiz.com. It's just nine questions. It allows you to sort of sort out where you are today. And then I give you some resources that are tailored to your situation so that you can make incremental improvements right now. So smart money quiz is one answer to that. But financial wellness, I think, at a individual level, so that I've kind of talked about it at a corporate level, the smart money quiz is more the individual level. And I think at an individual level, it's just feeling confident about where you are today as well as where you're going in the future. There's no, everyone being financially healthy looks different for everyone, just the same way that looking physically healthy is different right. for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you're not feeling well or if you're overweight and you can't perform, you're, you're not going to be at 100%. I see the same thing with financially. If you're worrying about things, you're not going to show up powerfully at your job, which will then affect everything. And so I I love that um, corporations are getting that and that there's more to wellness than just health, uh, which I I really am big in, but there's, it's more um, about how you think about your money and and that your mind can be focused on where you're at. Totally. All right. Let's, let's dive into your book, man. Um, Career success to financial success is the overview, and it's really making money simple. What a great title. Thanks. I, I think that's a really like, oh, what, what's your book about? Making money simple. <laughs> why, why, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to when, come up I'm, with a simple title, truly. I'm telling you, man, it is. It's, it's so simple now that you see it, but you have like a million different ideas, and then it's the, what are you going to do the subtitle on? And what it's like, ah, it's crazy. Well, I know you have a book too, and it's such a tremendous achievement, but I will tell you, um, I write a ton and I would like to think that I'm at least a competent writer. I almost never title my articles. I can't figure out what to title them. I actually titled this book. I dealt with a lot of things I could not figure out. And I was so aw shucks about it. I'm like, I don't know. I have this one thing, but I don't think it's that great. But the more and more I looked at it, I'm like, you know what? I really like this. So yeah, I, I, you're the first person to ever comment that, which is why I give you that extra background. I've done a lot of interviews uh, since the book coming out. And so thank you for appreciating something that I actually titled myself. Very happy about that. I'm not going to say that you agreed with this, but maybe we could co-write a book on how not to write a book. Um, yes. Yeah, I liked that idea. That, I think that's a good one. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, it's not, it's not all, it's a lot harder and um, it's, it's a labor of love. So um, sure. I, I have a ton of respect and I'm 100% hoping to dive into this and then hoping that my audience can help support you because I also know you don't write a book uh, for the money. You, write you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, ho- hopefully you knew that going in. If not, I, I want you to know you, you, you're not going to make money off of this book or not directly. No, no. And I actually, because I, I have a publisher, I, I waived my signing bonus so that I could 
acquire books at cost. Um, and you know, it's just a fancy business card, you know, and all the listeners, maybe I'm like totally upsetting the vision of what book writing is all about, but yeah, I mean, it's a fancy business card. Hopefully you know my life story having read it and hopefully you actually walk away feeling like you know who I am. You don't just like learn about money from some robot. Like I'm a real person who makes mistakes and has a real life and has passions. And so, yeah, I mean, you and I could probably go on for hours on how to not write a book or whether you just shouldn't do it in the first place, but super cool to have it. Yep. So career success to financial success. What's the premise of the book? And then I want to also touch on the reverse budgeting because that's a big topic here uh, at Better Wealth uh, our hate for budgeting, but our need for controlling our money. Sure. So um, I kind of feel like I am financially successful in part because I've had a nice career and I've worked hard, but also because I've made good decisions. And so that's sort of where this concept of turning career success into financial success came to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think that just because you have career success, you have to make good decisions in order to have that translate into something meaningful on the wealth side of the equation. And I divide the book up into three sections. The first one, if you only read the first four chapters, the introduction, and then the first four chapters of the book, what you would have learned is how to set goals and how to create a system to meet those goals. Because I mentioned earlier, we as humans are not the best at making money decisions. And something like budgeting that requires daily activity is not a good strategy. It, we do not have that sort of willpower. And so what are some things that you can put in place to make good decisions over and over and over again with minimal to no effort? So that's really what the first section of the book is about. Second section is all about investing. It's not just a how-to. There is a little theory behind it in part because of my background. And I think it's important to understand the system that you're using. And then the final part of the book is big one-time decisions people face, buying a home, having a family, getting married, buying insurance, getting an estate plan or taxes, all those kind of big one-time things that are super important. But that first section, you know, that's where the reverse budgeting lies that you talked about. And I know we talked beforehand, like nobody likes to budget. And so here's a system I've used. I don't think I came up with the term reverse budgeting. I feel like I had seen it before um, and people, I can't quite pinpoint it, but I've certainly seen other people use it since. And here's the thing. It's a great example of if you have to budget, that means you have to do something every day. But what if you get busy? Or what if you just don't feel like it? Um, Or what if you don't like what the numbers are telling you and so you intentionally ignore it? The other thing is, what if you say you have $500 expensed and bucketed out towards food, broadly speaking, and your best friend calls you up and they're going out for their birthday, but you've already spent all your money on food in your budget. Well, you're still going to go out for their birthday. So it's just too rigid. There's too much upkeep. Reverse budgeting is all about focusing on what you save instead of what you spend. So instead of budgeting out how much is left over to save at the end, you say, I'm going to save X amount because this is how much I need to reach my goals. And so by doing that, you pay yourself first in many ways, and then you just spend it as you see fit. Now, the system wouldn't work for you if you often find yourself in credit card debt, for example. This is not a system for you. You do need to perhaps track expenses to some extent. The other piece is that there's so much technology available where you just put in your credit card information and they track the expenses for you. So you don't really have to do it. But um, for over a decade, I've been using this reverse budgeting strategy. And last year is the first year I tracked expenses because my wife and I got a bigger home and I knew that we could afford it because the reverse budget said so, but I had no idea where my expenses were going. So I tracked expenses all last year. It was awful. And what I learned is 
hey, the reverse budget worked. I'm spending as much as I thought I did. I'm saving yeah. as much as I thought I did. Now I just know where I'm spending. And yeah. if you had to cut expenses, that is important. But if you're saving, you're putting yourself first, you should be both putting your future in, in a prime position, but also by saving more, you are spending less. So right. trying to, again, not take the human nature out of humans, but just work around it with systems like that can be really effective. I had someone on my on the show who's a good friend of mine who pretty much says that there's two type there's two ways that your money goes consumption or savings because everything else like your your taxes and all these other things will get consumed or if you save for something it will eventually get consumed and and so it was very very interesting and and the richest man in Babylon was the big aha for me when I great book. One of my first books I ever read, right? And I was, I was 14, 15 years old. And the idea of paying yourself first, a tenth of everything that you make is yours to keep and doing that before you pay other people, like that is such a great mindset. And, and if you're listening to this and hate the idea of, of, of like tracking every single dollar, make sure that you pay yourself first. Now, next question, the million dollar question, how, how much do people say, like how much do people save? Does it depend? What do you usually try to recommend? That's really the, the question because what is the savings? Do you have like a statistic on the average savings rate? I don't. I mean, I do for certain segments of the population, although not right in front of me. But what I'll tell you is the answer varies depending on when you, when you are starting. So if you're right out of college, I'd say target 30%. That is way higher than anyone is ever going to tell you. And let me tell you why I'd say you save 30%. So as your income grows, uh, your lifestyle will start to expand. But Market if you, yep. yeah, yeah, little lifestyle creep, you, you, you know, you got to try to put some of that money aside. And if you have a 30% savings rate and you have kids someday, you're like, how do I afford kids? Your high savings rate. So instead of you have 30% savings rate, well, maybe you go down to 15, but you got the benefit of the compound interest from those early years. And I feel like a lot of the way I afforded my children, afforded a different house, afforded things, a little lifestyle expansion that is not, oh, I'm buying more clothes and traveling and spending mm -hmm. money at, you know, at restaurants. It's, I mean, people all the time ask, how do you save for kids? Because you don't really, you just have a good savings rate. And the other thing is a good savings rate covers up a lot of mistakes. You can yep. do a lot of really, really not smart things, but a good savings rate can help you recover. So if you're just coming out of college, I think 30% is the number you target. If you are starting at 10% today and you're in your mid thirties and you're making six figures, I think 10% is too low, but you also can't just go from 10 to 20. And so maybe the better question to ask is how should I increase my savings rate? Because yes. we all can. And so increasing your savings rate half a percent per year, half a percent per year is probably not that noticeable. And there's really two ways people set goals. Sometimes people set these goals that are super large and outlandish because it gets them really motivated and people try really hard to reach them. I actually think more people do set that goals than this alternative way that I'm going to suggest. But I personally like the alternative is set reasonable, obtainable goals. Mm -hmm. And you don't, don't make them so easy that you can't put forth any effort. You have to put forth some effort, but make an achievable goal that you won't notice that much to make it easier to achieve and give you success and make it easier to make the next incremental step. Because these little changes seem small in the moment but when compounded over multiple decades, turn into incredibly large numbers. And so the small improvements you make, make a big difference. 
it's, it's that's where we're we're super aligned in, on this. They I, I tell people to align, like get a volume, focus on the volume of savings. And you said something that I'm gonna actually start using. It's when you what did you say? Like when you save a lot of money, that can cover up a lot of mistakes on the back yes. end. Like if you could create a system to save more money, um, that that is incredible. Any other piece? Be, in that section that you want to share because I, well, let's, how do you pick goals? Number one. And is there any other big takeaways? Because number one, thank you for sharing that. And I, I think that's super, super important to make sure that you know where you want to go and then you, you create a system for financial success. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, I'll mention again, smart money quiz will ultimately net you some of the resources that are in the book, but for free. Um, and as you set goals, I think it'd take too long for me to walk through all of it, but I'll mention, I think, I think the URL in the book is smartmoneyworksheets.com. Holy cow, do I have a lot of URLs? Um, but I think smart money quiz is easy enough and it will point you to the right worksheets. Um, and the idea is to help you out and give it up. But the goal prioritization, I both take a mathematical approach to it. Like what is mathematically optimal of saving for certain goals versus paying down certain debts versus uh, paying for certain consumption items. And so, you know, there's a lot of research on the science of money and what type of spending makes you happier. And so I have incorporated some of that research into the prioritization of the goals of what I call order of operations. So it's probably been a long time since all of us have been in high school where there's an order of operations in algebra, but kind of thinking like what goes first. And there is a math answer a lot, but there's so much science now behind what actually makes us happy that if you have to prioritize a vacation over a car, there is a scientific answer that would say the vacation is going to make you way happier. Or when you're picking your home, there are certain things that you can incorporate that are scientifically shown to make you happier for a longer period of time. So I try to, it's a, this is, you know, a abbreviated version of what's a very long version that's covered in the book. um, And through some of the outputs of smartmoneyquiz.com. But there, the thing is to really try to, have a plan. If you know where the end destination is, then it makes it much easier to plan for it. That's amazing, man. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Make sure to go check out smartmoneyquiz.com. And um, I'm, I'm definitely excited to, to dive into that as well. All right, let's move on to the basics of investing. Um, this is where we may disagree on some things, but I am super pumped to hear like how you lay it out in the book. I know that you don't get into specific strategies, but you lay out basics. And I would say from someone that is uh, managing over $4 billion, you know a thing or two about investing. So I'm, I sure I'm- hope so. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, so I can kind of walk through a little of what's there. I start the investing chapters by outlining common mistakes people make. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, people chase performance and they market time. You know, that's what they do. They, they try to pick a single security or a single strategy to beat the market. And even if that's not explicitly what they think they're doing, it is what they are doing, trying to time the market or chase performance. They also pay too much in fees. And so yep. those are some of the highlights. I do go into some theory to talk about why costs are important, why efficient markets are important, why it's so hard to beat the market. Um, what is an approach that doesn't rely on being smarter than everybody else, but harnesses everybody else's knowledge for your own benefit. And just kind of systems to start investing that will give you the highest probabilities of success. The one thing that I've learned in my career just of managing portfolios and working with institutions and retirement plans and individuals and families and charities is that 
there is no such thing as a perfect portfolio. There's really only the one that you can stick with for as long as humanly possible. And yeah. so what I've done is a lot, I've tried to outline, an, again, enough information to inform you to make some decisions. The publisher did make me put in a model portfolio. So that is in there. I didn't really want to, but I was like, fine, okay. we'll just do it. Uh, <laughs> but they're mostly just low cost index funds. And then there's a secondary approach that instead of index funds accepts some tracking error in an effort to beat the market over a long period of time. Still low cost, still low turnover, still low tax. But, you know, I think the investing side, it's more important. The most important thing about the investing is your mix of stocks and bonds and your savings rate. Totally. Uh, your savings rate is crazy. The impact it can have on your portfolio, making your portfolio more aggressive has such a small impact re relative to increasing your savings rate by 1%. It's, it's insane. And there's a table in the book uh, that shows how impactful that savings rate really is. That's, that's amazing. I have um, a, a calculator called Max Potential. It's put on by Truth Concepts. And it shows you and when you increase your savings rates and how valuable that is. Let me ask you this. So oh, there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this and a lot of people interested in investing in either real estate or investing in markets. I know that there's option traders listening to this. What is, would you say that that everyone should be in the market at some point. Like, should I, as a business owner, have some kind of portfolio along with the other things that I'm doing, or is it does it depend on the result that you want? I, I, I know that's a general question, but I'm wondering if if you get into that. Yeah, I think that if you don't invest in the market, and the other option is cash, nobody can say nobody's savings rate can be high enough to outpace inflation and grow your money fast enough to meet all your long-term goals. So I would say, yeah, I do think everybody should be invested. Should it be their number one priority? Not always. So sometimes I think you should have an emergency fund or pay down debt or, you know, have proper insurance in place or something like that. But I would say that, you know, the primary goal of investing is to grow your money faster than inflation while taking undue risks without taking, you know, yeah. without taking risks that you don't need to be taking. The, if you only save in cash, you're not going to be able to meet your long-term goals. You just aren't. And if you only invest in bonds, it helps a little, but you know, inflation does eat away your purchasing power. And so okay. equities are required to meet. It's riskier to not invest yeah. in terms of like meeting your long-term goals than to invest. And I think today, um, today in particular in the market, like the market's down, it has a big down day. It's down 3% yesterday, down 2% today. And I know I'm dating the podcast a little by saying this, but you know, we're, we've been up for the past 10 or 11 years. Yeah. I think that it makes it harder for people to say like, gosh, I'm putting my money in at the market top. Well, 75% of the time after a market top, when you go out 12 months from that market top, 75% of the time, the market is higher. So yeah. like the market top, look, the markets go down all the time. They right. go down 10% on average once every 12 months. It's laughably normal. 20, 30% drops happen a ton as well. You know, 65% of calendar years have a, a double-digit drop. And well over a quarter of those are 20% or more. And so those drops are normal. And so people might be afraid to invest because you do temporarily lose money. But I assure right. you that over the long term, it is way riskier to not be in the market than right. to it's be what, in it. It's what result do you want? Are you looking for today's result or are you looking for something in the future? My question really goes based on what if you're in the business of running your business or I in see. real estate? Because I've heard a lot of people say real estate, like they, they, they would say they're way outperforming not only the market and inflation, but that can be risky. 
Like you're, right. you're now taking, you're not diversified. You're now, I hope you know what you're doing. And the same thing with business, like Jeff Bezos, like is doing pretty good. And how many businesses fail and that's your whole life saving. So it's really being creating a system where you can save outperform inflation, grow, and also hopefully minimize risk without also getting your hitting your goals. I think that was really beautifully said. Yeah. Well, and I think obviously if you are only doing real estate or you're only investing in your one business, that's not a super diversified approach. Yeah. Like I think that's the one thing is you put all in, you can have a lot of real estate holdings. Your business itself can be highly diversified, but like I'm a business owner of an investment firm and I'm investing dollars. So that will go to show you, you know, my business is pretty tied to the market. The real estate stuff, you know, it's, it's always, I, uh, a lot of my family, you know, my uncles own a real estate company that does multifamily housing and commercial real estate. And they work really hard for their six to 8% long-term return. I do not. Uh, I click deposit and invest. So it's all a preference, but I would say diversification is important. Um, You know, protects against unforeseen things and you are compensated for taking certain types of risk. You know, is a provider of capital, whether that's to a company or to a piece of land or to a borrower. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are risks that you are not compensated for. And that idiosyncratic risk of not being diversified is something that you are not compensated for explicitly. Right. right. So now let's move on to the third point or section. And it's this bigger time, big, bigger one time decisions. I don't, you can, you can disagree with me on this. I really believe that your greatest financial need is spending and using money throughout your life. I think if you look at most people and they're, they spend money and there's not a ton of people showing them the best way to do that. So I love that this is in here, man. And I love that it's the third section because so often it's number one or number two. And I love that you have the end in mind. And so why don't you break that down? And then I'm curious what your philosophy is in helping people make those one-time big decisions um, because I think we're in alignment that if, if you don't get this right, it could be, it could be a bad thing. Yeah. I, and you'd mentioned something earlier, like you're, it's either savings or consumption. Yeah. Another way to say it, it's, it's either consumption today or consumption tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's at all consumption. We're all spending it. Uh, some of it's more fun than others. And the big expenditures you know, those are real opportunities to change your net worth for the better or for the worse. And the goal, maybe your goal is to have the biggest net worth when you die. You know, I'm not, you can't take it with you. So I do think you should spend it. Um, I think you should have enough to be secure and that you have the freedom to make the choices you want and live the life you want to live. And as I you know, structured the book at this end to have these big one-time decisions, it was tempting to put them in different places throughout the book. But I felt like, okay, we're going to get the system in place. We're going to make sure people are investing in a prudent manner. Now let's tackle those things that you only get one or two opportunities to do. So like, I am, I hope I don't have to buy another house. I'm in my second home. My first one I was in for eight years. I'm going to be in this home that I'm in now until I can't walk up the stairs to get to my master bed. So like, that means if I made a mistake on home purchase number one or two, maybe I'll get a third chance to do it right. But you only get, and you know, I got married once. I hope this is the only time I got married and merged finances with my spouse and had children. You don't get multiple times to do that. I mean, some people do, but I don't, you know, these are things that if you don't do it right the first time, you missed your opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes true with taxes and insurance and estate planning. And I kind of, you know, get after people a little bit who don't have disability insurance, for example, or yep. don't have a good estate plan in place 
or what are some of the mistakes that you can make in a home purchase or um, you know what are some things you should consider when you are buying life insurance these are all or what if you hire an advisor the last chapter is how to hire an advisor do you need to hire an advisor if so here are some ways to go about that because that's a huge investment that is consumption hiring an advisor and paying them a fee is consumption it's a huge expense it's i would argue it's an investment in yourself and it's mm-hmm. a really important one obviously i'm biased but help people make a good decision there. A good advisor can change your life. A bad advisor can change your life. Try to avoid that bad advisor that changes your life. And so I try to give you that sort of information um, so that you don't end up with the bad advisor who changes your life for the worse, but gives you a better chance of ending up with that advisor who can change your life for the better. What is the the premise of like, if you're going to get married, um, I'm not married yet. If you're going to buy a house, I haven't made a, a major house decision yet. Um, what, what are some of those, what are some of those things that you, that you talk about to really make sure? Cause I agree. The reason I'm cautious on certain things is I, I don't want to jump, jump in. And I kind of feel for me, uh, this is going to turn into a, a uh, therapy session, but like, I don't want to make too many crazy decisions before I'm married because I, I know that there's going to be some decisions that, that will happen when that happens. Um, but I mean, that's not true. Like I, I would say I've, start I have a company with tons of people working here and we're doing things and so it's definitely like a, it's kind of a give and take if you if, if you want to say that sure well I think the number one mistake I see people make prior to marriage is buy a starter home mm. uh, I think if you're not gonna if you can't picture a realistic future where you're in your home for 10 years you shouldn't be buying that home now I just told you I was in my home for eight years but I pictured a scenario where we're in there for 10 and truly I'm married and it was not entirely my decision to move. Love my new house, but just being honest here. The other thing is that if you buy a house before you're married, I have never in the history of my career met a person who owned a house, then got married and the spouse likes the house they lived in. They never liked the house ever, ever. And the way that you make money on a house, if you even want to call it that, is, well, get lucky, get lucky with your timing or stay in it for a really long time. If you're in your house for less than five years with the closing costs, with the interest costs, with yep. the moving costs, with the furnishing costs, with the maintenance costs, you definitely lost money. You may have bought your house for one price and sold it for another price, but that misses all the expenses that went into it. So I think that is the biggest mistake that people make prior to marriage. Once you're married, uh, there's really no right or wrong way to merge finances and to set up a system. But I think that uh, millennials and Gen Xers are a lot different than the baby boomers that either kept it all separate or put it all together. And Mm -hmm. so I do outline some different systems for merging finances and having these conversations. There are a lot of statistics out there. Um, I use one in the book because there's so many people say, they say like half of, you know, half of marriages end in divorce. And the number one cause cited is usually money. And so like, how do you prevent that from happening? I can't prevent your marriage from falling apart but I do know what good money communications look like. And I do know that everybody needs a system that fits their lifestyle. And so going through some of those things, you know, can be really helpful in setting the tone for a marriage for good communication and Mm. good, you know, everyone has different money personalities. It's very rare that you see someone who's very saving with another person who's very saving oriented. Somehow they always find the spendthrifts. They always do. I don't know how this happens. It's like Um, expert and introvert. It's like, yeah, totally. Like, uh, even each other out. <laughs> yeah. I feel like 
80 to 90% of the time, that's what I see with people we work with and people I see in my everyday life. And so just acknowledging that and trying yeah. to help those people work through those decisions. Do you, do you touch on how to buy a house or what things that you should yeah. like? Are you into 30-year mortgage or paying off your house quick? So I didn't deep dive into types of mortgages. I would say the argument for paying off your house quick is not mathematically a great one, especially right. where rates, rates are today. Um, I do talk about how much home you can afford, whether or not you should be buying versus renting and how to make that sort of decision. Um, I go through mistakes people make when buying a home. So like cheaping out on inspections, uh, not using a professional. People are like, I don't want to pay 6% of the price to have someone do this. You know what? If you've never bought a house before, trust me, you want someone who knows what they're looking at. You don't know what you're looking at when you're buying a house for the first time. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I touch on the high level stuff, but again, it was trying to not cover everything in great detail, but cover enough to be useful and impactful to life. Yeah. I could talk to you all day, man. Um, thank you. Thank you for just all this. This is, I can't wait to read the book and just learn way more about the systems and, and just how you think. Um, the question that I end our podcast with all, all the guests is not a money related question, but it could be. And it's this. Um, if this was your last day on earth and you knew that this was your last day and you were with the people that you love the most, your, your family, what would you share to your kids? What would you pass on to your wife and all the things that you've learned? What would that last conversation look like um, with them? Sure. Well, I will say that at part of the motivation in the middle of writing the book, which was really hard to keep going, was I was like, you know, if I ever get hit by a bus, at least my kids will know what I thought about money if they just have this. Now, in this scenario that you've painted, you know, I think I would encourage my kids to, you know, work hard and follow their passions. Don't trade it. Don't do the things solely for money, but do something you truly love. Uh, you know, I would encourage them to travel and see the world. You know, don't just live in our little bubble. Go see the rest of the world. That gives you a lot of perspective. Um, but you know, I think that. I, my kids are pretty young. They're six and two. If they are older, the message might be different. Uh, but I think it's really important for them, you know, to just do what's important and know that, you know, if it's my last day or if I would be proud with whatever they choose and, you know, they'll be good people. Just like be kind. Uh, yeah. I think if you can be a good, kind person, that's going to probably do more for your life than having a lot of wealth. You'll have great relationships, investing in your relationships and your experiences boy, the, that it's hard to measure the return on those things, but money, look, money buys you a lot of conveniences and you know, there are lots of things tied to happiness that it can do for you, but having really good relationships and having great experiences, that's what you're going to remember when it's all said and done. Yeah. I, I love that. I, Harvard did a really good study on, on the people live longer, happier lives when they are in relationships. And, and, and I just, I think sometimes it can get, we can get so focused on tactics and strategies that we miss the reason why you even want money to begin with. What, what, any, any last thoughts that you want to share? And then I also want um, my audience to be able to connect with you, get the book wherever you want to send them. And um, yeah, man, thank you for this interview. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, I'll just repeat it one last time. Smart Money Quiz is a resource designed for everybody. So uh, nine quick questions and I'll give you all my best resources I have tailored to your specific situation. Or you can go through multiple times and answer it lots of different ways and get different resources. But um, you know, I, I, if you want to follow me, I'm at Peter Lazaroff on basically every platform. Uh, 
Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. The tricky part's spelling Lazaroff, but if you Google my last name, you'll, it'll figure it out. I have a website, peterlazaroff.com. Basically, anything I do content-wise eventually ends up there as well. I love it, man. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show, and I wish you the best, and I can't wait for uh, us to have this ping-pong match. Yeah, game on. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to the Better World Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.